eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello and welcome into Tunnel Vision, a show presented to you by uscfootball.com. I'm your host, Jack Smith, joined in studio by Shotgun Spratling and Chris Trevino to talk USC's 48-45 rivalry victory in the Rose Bowl against UCLA. Before we get to all that, make sure you're leaving your comments in the chat, whether you're watching on YouTube or Twitter. And we're taking live callers today, 512-4-TUNNEL. Make sure you're calling in so that we can get your thoughts on the show. Before we get to all that, fellas, what an amazing game out in the Rose Bowl last night. It was a fun one. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like our call caller studio just went down, um, so we may not be able to accept your calls today. So that means get in the thread, get active. We want to hear from you guys. We wanted to hear your guys' voices and you know have have uh, listened to what you had to say about the game last night. But unfortunately, it looks like that may have went down. So give it a try and see if it works. If it doesn't, then get in the thread. Make sure that you're participating as well. That's what I was looking at. I was like, did the call just drop? <laughs> did the call just drop? Look, you give me two minutes, I could probably fix it. But in terms of my reaction to the game, what a wild game. What a fun game. What a thrilling game to cover. And it beats the games we were covering last year. And just a little bit. Just a little bit. And, you know, what an atmosphere in the Rose Bowl and, you know, rivalry game. Championship uh, berth on the line for USC. A lot of things on the line for USC you know, potential playoff spot down the line. I'm sure we're going to talk about that uh, today. But just so much riding on this game, and USC came to play, whether that's Caleb Williams, whether that's, you know, somebody stepping up in the moment, whether a Corey Foran, a Darren Barlow, a Kyle Ford, uh, getting Jordan Addison back. And then just the defense. I know, you know, give up 45 points. That's not the greatest thing in the world. But to step up and have four turnovers, including the game ceiling turnover just wow what an impressive uh effort especially for a defense that has been heavily criticized throughout the month of november but to come up with four turnovers in a game like this that means essentially everything to their season is impressive 
not everything to their season, but everything for the next 12 months as well as far as those bragging rights. I know you USC fans are you know, relishing in the fact that you will get to spend the next 12 months talking about that to any UCLA fans and friends that you may know uh, because they've had that right for the last 12 months after you know putting up 62 points. And one of the things I thought was interesting is they continued that right through this week, including Dorian Thompson-Robinson talking about how he wanted to put up 60 again against USC – how he hates those guys over there referencing USC. Just the trash talk that, that went through the week from the UCLA side while USC didn't have anything to say. And it's kind of, you know, when you when you get beat like they did last year, you don't have the right to say anything. And so USC didn't say anything, but after the game, they did have some things to say. Uh, and Brett and Elon, you know, calling them teddy bears, those teddy bears over there, those little teddy bears, I think is what he said, uh, and tell them they could say whatever they want, but we run LA, uh, was his quote. But then, talk, you know, hearing Tuli Tuli Pelotu talk about the revenge tour that USC has been on and Taj Washington, you know, the getbacks that they've been wanting to try to, uh, you know, this season, getting back those, those losses that they uh, had to take last year, the abuses that they, they suffered. And, uh, you know, to find a way to get all the way to the Pac-12 championship after being 4-8 and eight last year is just, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling when, if you would have seen this team, if you were in person watching this team walk out of the Cal tunnels, you know, as we were, and, you know, Brett Elon and Andrew Voorhees and those guys that, you know, we talked to as they were leaving, and the question was, they knew the Lincoln route was coming, but the question for them was, are you going to just go ahead and move on with your career? Are you going to come back for an extra year? What's kind of the plan there? And, you know, we Andrew Voorhees is one who anticipated, we anticipated was going to leave. He was planning to leave. I have been told that he had, you know, even told Lincoln Riley at one point that he was leaving and then backtracked that a couple days later. So, you know, those players decided to come back for moments like they had last night. And, you know, that's it was awesome to be down there. You know, just some of the, the guys that we've known for, you know, five, six, seven years, some of them, uh, from covering them in high school and stuff, it was awesome to see them get to relish in that moment after the game. So that was really fun to, to just kind of witness and, you know, be a, uh, a fly on the wall as they were celebrating uh, that in the end zone after that game. Speaking of the Cal game, do you know who the final player I interviewed from that night was? Basically by myself. Was it Brett Elon? No. No, because he had multiple people around him. Um, Corey Foreman. Yes. It was Corey Foreman. And yeah, go just, to just to see that, you know, essentially a year later to have because, him. And because at that time, a lot of people were saying, you know, is Corey Foreman going to transfer? You know, and that was one of the things, you know, when we're just after a game, just behind the scenes a little bit, game ends previously, not this year because they bring everyone into us, but we would say, okay, who do we make? We need to make sure that we get. And then who would be other people that would be good? You know, what's some good topics, that type of thing. And that was one of the people we brought up is that people want to know about Corey Foreman and his status going forward. So Chris interviews him and, uh, you know, long 12 months ago, it feels like after that play last night. And I straight up asked him, do you intend to come back? And he was like, yes, I tend to be, you know, part of this team with this new coaching staff, Lincoln Riley. And, you know, he's, you know, battled some criticism this year, just like he did his freshman year. But, you know, to come up with that play in the end, you know, I know it felt really good for him. I know it felt really good for a lot of fans that have been huge Corey Foreman supporters and to see all that talent on the field. And that's why he's a five-star. Just see the way he was able to move out there, make that catch, seal that game. That's why he was the number one player in the country during his uh, 
his cycle. So to have him have that and make that play is just an incredible. And that's why you love sports because things like that happen. You never know who's going to make the play and ends up being number zero, agent zero. Just uh, really cool. And one player we haven't mentioned, and I thought it was, you know, from the emotions of the week for Bobby Haskins to come into that game. And I thought the offense changed when he came into the game. Uh, just, you know, that's when they started moving the ball much more consistently. It was much smoother of an operation, it felt like. And I don't know, you know, I, I haven't got a chance to really rewatch the game and really focus. But I don't know if, you know, young, young players, especially young local players, can be overwhelmed in the moment. Because of a big game, you get too hyped up, too emotional. And I think you saw that a little bit with Relique Brown. I think, you know, you know, first time in the rivalry game, trying to do a little bit too much at times. Uh, and I think he got affected a little bit. But maybe Mason Murphy uh, kind of got overwhelmed a little bit. I'm not sure. But the coaching staff decided to go with Bobby Haskins and put him into the starting lineup after starting Mason Murphy for once again, which I thought was interesting, since especially since Lincoln Riley said that Bobby would be, you know, fully healthy going into this week. But he comes into the game, and the offense changes then. And, you know, I didn't get to see it at the time, but seeing the video of it afterwards and seeing the clips that a couple people have posted, you know, where him just in tears after the game, you know it was an emotional moment for him. Because every rivalry game has that emotion, even though he hasn't been in this rivalry. You know, you start feeding off of your teammates' emotion. You're going to battle with them, you know, guys that have been here before, all that type of stuff. And then, you, you know, that emotion kind of – rolls into the emotions that he obviously had been going through all week with with the tragedy at UVA. So um, I think he's a guy that isn't being noted, but had a big impact on this game, I think. And I don't know if people saw that photo that USC Athletics posted, but great shot of a Virginia t-shirt. I'm assuming it's one of his when he was there and just had the numbers of you know his former teammates that were uh, slain in that tragic event. So hanging up in his locker. So just a great shot. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. But yeah. Definitely a lot of emotion coming from Bobby Haskins and everyone around him. When I, I, I stumbled upon that scene when he was hugging Benny Wiley after the game and just everyone around them was like affected by that that emotion. Not just obviously because of what they just accomplished and be able to secure a spot in the championship, but just doing it for him and you know the week that he's had. Yeah, I think there were a lot of things that were expected that ended up happening last night. Of course, rivalry game, there was a lot of emotion, as Lincoln Riley mentioned, he expected would happen. Everyone thought it was going to be a shootout, and that's exactly what it was. And you just go to the end of the game, it couldn't, I don't think, end in a more unexpected way with Corey Foreman getting onto the field, which has been a struggle for him this year, even though we all know he has that talent. And then making a play, not rushing the passer like we expected to see him if he was on the field, but in coverage, lurking Dorian Thompson-Robinson for his third interception of the night. We'll talk about the offenses, I'm sure, but let's start by talking about that USC defense forcing four turnovers. Yes, they allow 45 points, but in the end, they're the one to make the play to win the game after the USC offense couldn't score. They were stopped, had to punt, and then Corey Foreman and the defense come up and make a big play. Yeah, and I'll let Chris kind of answer about the defense and creating the turnovers, but you talk about unexpected ending. And not necessarily Corey Foreman dropping back. That wasn't, and, you know, I chuckled at when you said that. But the fact that they were back-to-back defensive stops uh, in the final six, six and a half minutes, I think it was, no one scored. The first nine and a half minutes of the game, three straight defensive stops, no one scores, and a turnover. And so in that, that's basically one third of the game. It's like nineteen something minutes, so almost twenty minutes of the game. One third, no one scores. The other two thirds of the game. Was it 93 points were put up, or was that what the, the final tally was? Like, it's just kind of it's unfathomable, kind of the the way the game started, and you know, just no one being able to get any consistent. USC get a three and out to start the game, 
And then to end the game with back-to-back defensive stops. And, you know, I was talking on the sideline with Jordan Moore, uh, USC's radio guy, and, you know, uh, some other people. And, like, it felt like, you know, start of the fourth quarter, USC scores touchdown on the first play. The very next offensive play is a touchdown. And you go, okay, is it that point in the game where one defensive stop, whoever makes the next defensive stop is going to win this game? Because either USC is going to be able to, you know, to pull ahead by, you know, uh, multiple scores. And you know UCLA is not going to be able to keep within three points, or UCLA is going to be able to retake the lead because you know if you make one stop, you're going to score right after it. And to get back-to-back stops, and I know a lot of USC fans uh, were probably you know when they have to punt the ball there, like it's over. It's I, you know, we're not we can't win this game now. We haven't stopped them all for the second half. It doesn't feel like. Uh, and you know for USC to find a way, even I even tweeted after the third down stop uh, or the third down before that, third and ten. That you know that was their opportunity. You know it, it felt like that was the, the the opportunity third and ten to to get off the field, and they didn't do it. So maybe it was just the next third down that they had to do it. Third and five, and Corey Foreman comes with a great play. Yeah, the defense is just like that. Your point to where early on, a lot of defense. Early on, at the end, we end with some defense. It just felt like that that old guy at the rec league that goes super hard in the first five minutes of the game is. <laughs> I got to check out. I got to check out. And then he's on the bench for the how the whole rest of the game, and then he checks in for the final thing, and he makes the makes the play or something. So that's kind of what it felt like. Just taking what a break. What an analogy! Good what an analogy! analogy. No food analogies for me. Uh, weird sports analogies. That's what I make. <laughs> but you said you were gonna let me talk about the turnovers, and four of them, which they haven't forced since, I believe the Fresno State game or something like that. Someone will correct me on when they got Sounds four. Sounds correct, but I'm not gonna go off the top of my head. But anyway, they haven't had. Turnovers like that in bunches in a long time. I believe Colorado was the first time they've had multiple in a in a game in quite some time. But 45 points, shotgun. We knew, we know USC's defense isn't a defense that's going to shut you down to less than 20 points. We know it's a bend and don't bend, don't break defense. You know they're gonna give up yards. You know that they're gonna have a couple of busts every now and then. But early in the season, what they were they doing? taking the ball away, and you got a early season performance out of this defense where they came up with the stops doing it the, the best way they know how, taking the ball away, and they all felt, outside of Makai Blackman's uh, gimme pick, it all felt just kind of random. Like, Corey Foreman, you know, in coverage, coming up with a sack, looking like a wide receiver, random. Tyrone Teleni, you got the nation's sack leader, but it's Tyrone Teleni that comes up with the big sack and uh, strip sack, uh, Latrell McCutcheon scoops up, and then Shane Lee, like barely six foot Shane Lee, going up over the middle, <laughs> this showing favorite. the hops over the middle after you know they just gotten a, 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 another t- a, a, a turnover earlier, like the series before. Just they just came out of nowhere. It wasn't anything like super. It wasn't like a star power kind of deal. It was just like guys were just making the plays, and it didn't matter where it came from. Didn't have to be Kalen Bullock. Didn't have to be Tuli Tupolo. It could have been Tyrone Tillane. It could have been Shane Lee jumping the highest he's ever jumped in his career, uh, making that play. Or and Corey making Foreman the catch with still with a cast on his thumb. With a cast on his thumb, yes. Just all these plays. You know, the defense showed up when they needed to. They got bruised and bloodied, but, man, they came out on top. 
I will say the the Shane Lee interception was I thought the the craziest one because I turned to I don't know if it was you Chris but the play before that was a Max Williams dropped interception which he might have had six points on I turned to you with I think there was 20 seconds left and I said okay well there you go now Chip Kelly's not going to throw the ball again this half next play same thing Dorian Thompson Robinson over the middle of the field gets picked off by Shane Lee chaos ensues where Dennis Lynch misses a field goal short but there was a timeout and so he kicks a field goal again and he ends up making it it was just a lot of craziness but there were so many plays by the USC defense that while unexpected were the reason I think that they won this game because it was a three-point margin you come up with four turnovers and you only turn it over once that's make that makes a big difference yeah definitely and that's what we've said about this defense you know that they're not going to shut people out but can they create explosive plays and that was what UCLA's defense did in the first half is, you know, they basically followed the UCA, USC formula of bend but don't break, get in the red zone, and okay, if you can get one big sack or you can create a turnover, you know, you get off the field. And e even if the offense now has to go, you know, 90 yards versus going five yards like USC did when the, the Tulane sack, uh, you're still giving that offense a chance and you trust in that offense that they can go 90 yards. It's not a big deal for them. Um, so USC, that's the big thing is just, as long as you don't give up seven, then you consider it a positive drive. You can give up three every single drive, and you would still feel comfortable that your offense will outscore the opposing team. You know, no matter what, if the uh, the opposition gets eight, ten drives, you feel like okay, if they get ten drives and get three points each time, USC could still win that game. And that's what UCLA was doing early. That's what USC eventually did in the game is started creating those turnovers. And I thought it was interesting. You you know. The run game was working for UCLA early, and then when they went that two-minute drill, that's what shifted everything. And they probably still had time where they could have run the ball on that drive. Instead, the the first pick to Makai Blackman, instead they put the ball in DTR's hands, and he throws that interception, and you, you call it a gimme. I couldn't really see it from my angle, um, but, you know, it seemed like a pretty easy pick for, for Makai Blackman, just stepping in front on that one. Um, but, you, you know, there was an opportunity there for UCLA to you know, what we've talked about with USC all season step on their neck, you know, right before the half because they're getting the ball back after the second half. If they can score on a drive and then score once more, suddenly USC is in the biggest hole they've been in all season. How do they respond to that? Because you know, it's in the first quarter, it's you know whatever you can come back from that. When it's halftime or it's after halftime now. All those local guys start feeling that pressure a little bit more. And does someone, you know, does someone make a mistake because of the, the extra pressure? Whereas it played out, USC was able to get that field goal late to get them a little bit closer. They hold UCLA to a field goal on the opening drive of the second half. And then Jordan Aston scores a touchdown. Now USC's ahead and they never trail again. So they're not chasing the entire second half with, uh, you know, an opposing crowd going against them and whatnot. So they, I thought that that sequence right before the half is what completely changed the game or the, the, the middle eight, as you know, as they call it. I think that's what where USC won the game. And it started with that interception by Makai Blackman followed up by Shane Lee and holding UCLA to that field goal to open the second half. There were three stats that I covered for our student radio pregame show. One of those was that middle eight USC this season, second in the Pac-12 and middle eight points. So that's the last four minutes of the first half and the first four minutes of the second half. They had scored 55 points this season. UCLA only scored 27. So that was a prime position that USC needed to win that, especially going down 14 nothing early. And then also on the defensive side of the ball, UCLA was 0-2 this year where DTR threw more passes than they had rush attempts on the day. He had one more pass attempt than UCLA did rushing attempts yesterday night. And that one was a very big one at the end with the Corey Foreman interception. The other one, which you kind of mentioned, shotgun, where the UCLA red zone defense stepped up. 
They had been 121st in the country going into the game, allowing a touchdown on 91% of opponent red zone drives. And USC, I think, started two for five on touchdowns in the red zone on their first five. And the third one was a missed field goal. I, I, I don't remember exactly the stats are, but I think they were two for five touchdown-wise on their first five trips to the red zone against what was the 121st worst uh, red zone defense in the country. Yeah, and that's why UCLA was leading at the half, and that's why you know they had a great opportunity in that game to, like I said, take control in that middle um, and did not do it. And give credit to the USC defense, especially after you know that sequence. You know they they got the three and out early. But then it basically been run through the rest of the first half until the very end and came up with a couple big plays that, that changed the course of the game. And you know, we talked about a lot of different players stepping up and give Corey Foreman uh, you know, a lot of credit on that, uh, flipping his hips on that. It's a, you see why he was the number one player in the country on that type of play because that's not a play that you know, Nick Figueroa or Solomon Bird is probably making just with the athleticism, the fluidity that Corey Foreman was able to make it with. Um, so that's why he's up there. But, you know, you also give credit to him for putting in that work. And we heard everyone talking about it, uh, you know, after the game of, you know, th what he's been doing throughout the process and they're starting to reward him. He's earned that opportunity. He made a couple plays early in the Colorado game, halftime. He comes out and he's the starting rush in to start the second half against Colorado. I thought that was interesting. And then last night, I noted it and I didn't have time to tweet it uh, because everything was going so crazy. But he's the one that started that final drive. This is a win or lose drive for USC as a defense. And the person that they trusted to put on the field at that rush in spot was Corey Foreman. Now, part of that is because of the way they were playing. Uh, DTR in that in that uh, situation and dropping at times, and that's why they had Tuli Tuli Pelotu standing in the middle of the field and you know doing his kind of faux linebacker coming up and you know attacking from the the second level. You know they were doing different things there, but they trusted Corey Foreman to be out on the field at that time. So I think that says a lot about his development, the work he's put in. You know, and everyone expected him to be the dude immediately. It hasn't happened, but we're seeing those bits and bits of it and you know you were Alex Grinch said they've been waiting for a breakout and they're hoping that that play uh, that they saw Saturday along with a couple plays against Colorado can be the catalyst to what can be for him the rest of the season absolutely very quickly can we just talk about how Zach Charbonnet bottled up for most of the night I think that was an underrated kind of storyline from tonight and I remember turning to Jack and being like I feel like they're doing an okay job on Charbonnet. They're not doing an amazing job. They're doing an okay job, which for this USC defense is an amazing job. And that's a guy who I saw pregame putting on a giant bib uh, around his neck in anticipation of facing off against this uh, USC <laughs> run defense. Licking his chops? L licking the chops. He was drooling at the mouth for this USC run defense. And lo and behold, they hold him to under 100 yards. Just the second team to do that this season. I believe he had six consecutive games of at least 100 yards. And his last four or five, he had over 150. Mm -hmm. So he had been eating going to this game. And USC had an answer for him. Because you knew you could not leave, this, leave the Rose Bowl with a win if both Zach Charbonnet and DTR both went off. You needed to limit one of them. And for the most part, you know, with four turnovers against ZTR, you shut him down for the most part. And then to hold Charbonnet to under 100 yards, that's just uh, extra cherry on the top uh, for this shutting down their stars. Yeah, he didn't have explosive runs. And that's what, and he didn't have explosive plays on the backfield. That's what he's been so good with because 
you know, they tackled well against him. That's been an that was an issue for what three four weeks in a row. You know, just not tackling. And Zach Charbonnet is a guy that breaks tackles, you know, at will basically. So it, it usually takes more than one person to get there to bring him down. So give a lot of credit to the defense for for rallying to the ball and being you know being explosive when they get get there to to in, uh, to stop some of those extra yards that he's normally able to get. So I thought, yeah, they did a good job on him. I also thought UCLA went away from it more than they yeah. should have. Like it felt like, why are you not using Zach Charbonnet more? I mean, we say that he got bottled up. He still ran for five yards a carry. You know, he ran. I think it was sixteen times for ninety yards, uh, or eighteen times for ninety yards. So, hey, against his defense, that's like three. True. <laughs> I mean, it's a good. I'm not saying it's not a good job for USC, but if if your guy, if your running back is getting five yards a carry. Why not use that more often? You know, this is the type of game where sometimes you got to rely on that running back to go 25 carries maybe. And 25 is a high number these days, but I was talking with someone before the game and they were rattling off Marcus Allen's stats um, from his Heisman uh, year, talking about how he basically was carrying 37 times a game. So, like, this is not – it's not unheard of to be able to, in a rivalry game, add a couple more carries on there. And it's similar – I'm sure UCLA fans are saying the same thing that we've heard USC fans say throughout the season when Travis Dyes run the ball well. It's like, why are they not giving him the ball a little bit more? And Charbonnet is a guy that is even bigger than, than Dyes, so he can handle the contact a little bit more, so you don't fear about that. So I was a little baffled that they didn't – that they trusted DTR so much that they – Went away from Charbonnet at times. I call that the Marquis Step syndrome. Could be. He's averaging six yards a carry. Why not give him the ball more? That's an interesting question. But no, this offense, we want to do this and this and this. And sometimes you want to you want to exploit things. You want to get so creative. When sometimes it's like this is working. And that's been the one things that I one of the reasons why I thought it was so interesting is because Chip Kelly is known for. You know, if you can't stop a play, he'll run it six times in a row at you. And it felt like they went away from Charbonnet much sooner than they needed to in that game. Um, so I, I thought that one that helped out USC's defense. So uh, when they bottled him up, and I thought it was interesting, Alex Grinch's comment. He was asked about bottling up Zach Charbonnet. He said, "Well, I would say Thule. One word, <laughs> Thule." I think I mean I think it's pretty fair. I think Tyrone Teleni had a big hand in that as well. There were some plays early on in the second half where them two were just kind of causing a lot of chaos up the middle. But I think that's why it's so important that USC was able to come down 14 nothing and why it seemed like such a big deal when they initially went down 14 nothing because the key as as you Arizona and Oregon laid out was you need to make DTR throw the ball more than you can run it. If they had a 14 nothing lead and they've got Chip Kelly at the helm where you mentioned he'll run the same play six times in a row, it kind of felt like you were going to see Charbonnet get those 30 carries. USC came back pretty instantly. They ended up going on a 34-10 to run after that, which is just kind of a, a crazy thought. How many games last year did USC not even score 34? Someone wants to put that in the chat. I'm curious about that. But being able to come back and not only come back to, to tie it or keep it close, but eventually take a big enough lead where UCLA could not run the ball quite as much. And with Caleb Williams, and the USC offense moving the ball up and down the field so easily. It's hard, I bet, as Chip Kelly not to feel the pressure of Caleb Williams on the other side and then stay patient enough to run the ball. And that's sometimes where UCLA has run into some issues this year. DTR had a, a great game. I mean, six total touchdowns. But if you make him throw the ball a little bit more, it was laid out and their two losses. He will sometimes make a mistake that loses them the game. We haven't really mentioned Caleb Williams yet. No, I well, think we, we should talk about defense. the USC offense. I mean, we did we did start with the defense and give them a lot of credit. Um, you but, haven't tangent us. You haven't taken us on that tangent yet. <laughs> but how about the Heisman-worthy performance from Caleb Williams? And 
after seeing Hinton Hooker go down with an injury, seeing Blake Corum go down with an injury. I don't think C.J. Stroud's numbers were great. I haven't see, uh, checked those yet, but... Play that Maryland defense. Drake Drake May, who a lot Sorry. of people like to move he, above Caleb Williams, didn't even throw a touchdown. Oh, yeah, he, he, he did, and then it was dropped in the end. Oh, but uh, Catch the ball. Um, but all the other Heisman favorites in the, in the conversation didn't really do anything this week, and Caleb Williams did on a big stage. So... I wouldn't be surprised when the odds, you know, the odds that I get emailed to me are come every Monday, I believe it is. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's at the lead uh, tomorrow or at least right behind C.J. Stroud. Uh, so we'll see, you know, those Heisman odds, it seems it's feeling more and more likely that Caleb Williams is at least headed for a trip to New York if he plays his normal game the next two weeks against Notre Dame and, uh, you know, the in the Pac-12 championship. So he was spectacular. 470 yards passing. Only three touchdowns in this game, and that seems like a very low number just because he had five in the four games previous, in each of the each of the four games previous. So he throws for two touchdowns, connecting with Jordan Addison, connecting with Kyle Ford, runs for another one. But USC's ground game was really good too. So that's where a lot of the touchdowns went with Austin Jones getting in twice, Darlin Barlow getting in. So the offense was rolling after that first quarter. The first quarter... They moved the ball well, but stalled out in the red zone. But they cleaned those issues up the rest of the game. Uh, need to get a little bit more consistency out of Dennis Lynch. Um, obviously, kicking the 49-yarder shows what he can do <laughs> right after he kicked it short. And I think he was thinking too much. And usually, if a kicker kicks it short like that, when they have the leg, that means they're you're thinking about it. Oh, i got to make sure I hit it perfectly. And he just let it go on the next one and, and banged it through. And that was his last attempt. So I think that's a positive sign for him to grow off of. But you got to be able to hit the chip shots. Like that, those are the ones that cost you games and really tight games potentially. So they need a little bit more consistency there. But to see the run game really run to really get going without Travis Dye, what well, was a positive. And again, this is all after those first couple drives because fourth and one. You know, that has been an easy money play for USC, third and one, fourth and ones with Travis Dye, and they get stuffed the first time without him. I think that was kind of telling of the impact he's had this season. Uh, but they, they bounced back from it, and they did that throughout the throughout the game, and you saw different receivers stepping up. You saw different running backs stepping up. You saw different linemen come in. Bobby Haskins coming in, and, you know, the offense running much smoother after he came in. So the offense wa was terrific. We expected that because UCLA's defense is boo-boo, but you still have to go out there and perform, and especially after a slow start, you got to be able to bounce back, and they did that. You just put a bunch of dishes on the table, and I don't know where to start first. Hey, this is a Thanksgiving buffet, come early. buffet meal. Let's go. You get to pick and choose, Chris. Whatever, well, you, whatever you leave, I'll, I'll talk. I there just wanted go. to say in terms of Caleb Williams and the sort of Heisman race ongoing, the Heisman is not one here. The Heisman <laughs> is one here in November in the last – four or five games of the season. And Caleb Williams, as we know, has been playing lights out in the month of November, racking up touchdowns, taking care of the ball, doing with his legs, having those uh, black magic moments where he's escaping uh, sacks and pressures and making these incredible throws with the help of some incredible catches from his wide receivers. So it's all clicking right now for Caleb Williams and this march towards the Heisman and getting to New York. You know, if he plays another... Like you said, up to what he's been playing like the last couple of weeks against Notre Dame, you know, I would say he's booked the ticket. F figure figure out your your lodging uh, for for New York. I think he already has his ticket. 
I mean, the, the thing I asked Ryan last night is if he was going to stay with me in Philadelphia and then we were going to go up to, to New York mm. or if, you know, I was just going to meet him in New York. Because that's kind of the question right now, especially with the fact that there is no single person that is, you know, a front runner. Because then if there's a front runner and, you know, it's, that means the ballot is pretty narrow and usually that means there's only three finalists. When the ballot is kind of widespread like this, that can be four or five finalists that, that get invited to New York. So with that potential, I think he's definitely in the top five. Are we still waiting for the Heisman moment, the Heisman game? You know, that, that singular, like, like I thought it was going to come on that final drive. I thought it was going to be like, bam, third down, scramble, shoot over the middle, hits Michael Jackson in the chest, seals the game. That's what I thought was coming on that final drive. I still think we're looking for that Heisman moment. What do I know? Lincoln Riley's won, won three Heisman winners. doesn't matter what I think. But I feel like from a media standpoint, you're still waiting for that Heisman moment. You're still waiting for that Heisman quote-unquote game. I mean, he had that Heisman moment. It was just on the Pac-12 network against Oregon State. Damn. I mean, that, that final drive sure. was the potential. Um, but what did I say? Exactly. It's not there. And it's also here. on no one national television versus... We saw it. No one else did. That's true. I got a great video of it. Brilliant throw. Again, you need your Heisman moment somewhere in here. Because no one's going to remember it over here. You're going to remember right here. And, you know, he's getting the pub that he needs as well. You know, when Joel Klatt is, one, is the analyst, and Joel Klatt, obviously being a quarterback, breaks down things really well. He's one of the best in the business at breaking down things. And he says certain things on the, the uh, broadcast that showcase what Caleb Williams is doing that, you know, your normal, your, your B team, C team analyst may not get, may not pick up on. I think that definitely helps you. And that's the product of having the big games at the end of the year on the national broadcast where you're going to get the top, you know, we're getting Herb Street or you're getting Clad or, you know, whoever it is that can really identify those things and then bring it to the your casual viewer to be like, oh, okay, that yeah, I really do see that. And then also, you know, the, the, the people who vote on it, the media members, they like being told what's really good too because they're trying to work on all their stories and stuff at the same time and they're listening to it more than they're watching it. So that can definitely help. So a lot of factors, I think, are helping Caleb Williams out right now. But obviously, he's got two more games to showcase himself. And if he does that, again, I think he's at least in Vegas. I mean, in, uh, in Vegas. New York. He's already got Vegas on his mind. He's ready to play some blackjack. He's, he will he's be ready. in Vegas as well. We do know that. Because guess what? USC is the Pac-12 champions. Uh, or at least in the Pac-12 championship, sorry. Before we move on, can I do like 45 seconds on Darren Barlow? Absolutely. I want to take this moment to say, I tweeted this out about how that moment of just having Darwin Barlow, number 22, who Shotgun can back this up or uh, blow it out of the water for me, has not played like a legitimate like money... That's not the right word. Like yeah, non-garbage. He hasn't played with the first team. Yes. Like a non-garbage time snap. And then to have his number called in arguably the most important drive of the season, you need a touchdown here because UCLA is whooping you right now. They're, they're scoring on you at will. You need a touchdown to keep that, that extra breathing room with a 10-point lead because you know they're going to score again. So in the most important moment, who does they call? 22. Darwin Barlow, and not only does he have the touchdown run, but he has a, you pointed out, a grown man dog run. The run before, takes a kidney shot, keeps rolling, 
and then to have his number called again, and he delivers, lowers the shoulder in the end zone. I mean, what a moment. And just see the emotion of him. I tweeted out that touchdown earlier today because I loved it so much. Just his reaction of just letting it all hang out, letting it all loose, and just seeing everyone celebrate him. Because, you know, Darwin is obviously someone that has fallen down the depth chart in terms of that stack room. You had Travis die. Austin Jones was up there. Relique Brown was getting touches. Darren Barlow was getting touches here and there. We've seen him score a couple times this season, get a couple carries in, in garbage minutes. But, you know, for him to have that moment in the Rose Bowl was just awesome, first of all. And then to hear how excited everyone was for him, just, you know, Austin Jones saying, you know, he was so happy and proud for him. And they had their moment on the sideline to, to have him step up. And I think that goes to, one, the talent of that room, because we've been saying it since last year, Darwin Barlow is a really good player and Darwin Barlow flashes and Darwin Barlow probably needs more carries. And the other part, I think it just goes to coaching. It goes to, you know, getting a guy ready throughout the week to step into a game and not flinch, to not blink. You know, think back to Michael Jackson stepping up in that moment in Utah, the biggest play of his career. He scores, obviously didn't win that game, but to have that initial go-ahead touchdown in that moment was huge. And he didn't have to think about it. I asked him about it. He said, I didn't really have a chance to think about how big the moment was. And that's coaching. You get them ready. And so they don't have to think. It's just reaction to what they've been working on, what they've been coached, what they've been taught uh, all season, all week, whatever in practice. So to have Darwin, you know, answer like that when his name was called was awesome to see. Austin Jones played a great game. We'll probably talk about him a little bit. But I just wanted to give Darwin Barlow uh his roses, his flowers for that, and I know I went way over forty-five seconds. So I yeah, and he's, he's got that radiant smile too. He, he's got and that just, draw, that little grin. Draw. Yeah, um, that's great to see. He, he's one of our favorite players that, that we've covered because he gives great quotes. He runs hard. Um, he's just got the little baby face and that that smirk. Uh, he, he's just he's a very likable player to to root for. And yeah, those are were two beast runs back to back. I mean the the first one you mentioned he took the kidney shot. He took the kidney shot off of stiff arming Tyler Vaughn's little brother right in the face and you know just continuing to run as he was doing it and he turns a little bit takes the kidney shot from St uh, Stefan Blaylock so back to back Bosco hits he just keeps ticking from those he was like a modern day player out there and to not and to not like lose the ball too like he's turned around and he doesn't know what's really coming. And then to take the hit and to hold on. Yeah, that's a tough hit to take. That's a tough hit to take in, like, a big moment. And to hold on to that, um, you know, what 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 a back-to-back -back plays by number 22. Hit with the 22. Get out the way. I want to dispute what you said, Chris, about Caleb Williams maybe not having a Heisman moment yet. Because he had 502 yards against UCLA, 502 total yards, and that might just seem like a big number, but that is the single highest number for any player in this rivalry history. This is the 92nd time that USC and UCLA have played each other, and that's the number one most total yardage in a game by any player in the rivalry history. And sometimes, like Shotgun was mentioning, it takes an analyst to talk about it or Twitter to be set ablaze by a crazy throw or a big run, like even Darwin Barlow's run, something like that. But if you set a record that a lot of people start to talk about where I I saw PFF College tweeting about it, ESPN College Football tweeting about Caleb Williams setting the record in the rivalry history. That's sometimes enough, and it may not be you know one play, but that game beating UCLA as well on the road could be his Heisman moment, I think, for sure. And one of the things that he did not do was set the uh, passing yardage record because let's give a little bit of credit to Keaton Slovis and the four wide receivers that went for 100 yards all in the same game. I was there. In 2019. Um, and I also want to give a little credit to the 2020 game. I know a lot of people are talking about how is this the best game in the rivalry since whatever year. 
that 2020 game was electric. There was just no electricity because there was no fans. Um, but the the way it ended, the way USC, you know, the the kickoff return by Gary Bryant Jr. getting down there, the Amon Ross St. Brown touchdown, uh, UCLA having a hail mary chance and coming really close. And who was the one to knock the the ball away on the hail mary? Malcolm Epps. No, <laughs> close. Drake London. It was an offensive player, but always my boy Drake. You know. Also, if we're talking about 2020. The Arizona State game was probably one of the craziest games ever covered. And no one was well, in we there. We were talking about the rivalry. I know, but that's I'm just true. saying, if we're throwing out 2020, that, like crazy. one of the craziest games I've ever covered in my life and not a not a, a sound in that stadium. Well, I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> and really very weird. quickly, Austin Jones, great performance by him, stepping up in the moment, had 2-6 written on his wrist all game. Travis Dye told him before the game to, uh, was it remind them who you are? Yep. Because – they had forgotten who he was or they were forgetting who he was. And I think he did that on Saturday night, just just running with so much confidence and pretty much made every play that he needed to make uh, in that game. So I just wanted to shout out to number six uh, for his performance and stepping up when, uh, you know, two six is, is down. I think it was definitely the best SC football game since that 2016 Rose Bowl. And I think you could argue that in some ways, it's the most important game since then, and you could argue even past that point, the most important USC football game. We can kind of talk about some of the implications of the win past USC clinching a spot in Vegas for the Pac-12 title game. But just what this win meant for Lincoln Riley, for the culture, for all the players that were brought in. You mentioned for Bobby Haskins, you could talk about recruiting. I feel like there's a, so many different webs you can spin about the implications of this win for USC. And coming into the game was very important. The fact that they won it and the way that they did coming back for the first time uh, since Oregon State, it's a huge win for USC in so many different ways. I mean, I, I guess it's the biggest win since the Rose Bowl, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's nothing been quite that had the implications that this game had. And just as far as, hey, they are in the Pac-12 championship now, and they still are live for the college football playoff. They are in the top five now. I don't know the last time, Chris, you wrote the story about it, so uh, about them being ranked top five. Maybe you know the, the date of the last one. But first time during the college football playoff rankings that they've been in the top five. So, uh, you know, that tells you they have a shot. And if they the, – the, the big concern – we're not going to talk – we've been getting a lot of questions about Notre Dame. They'll go over, we'll go over that during the uh, Thursday Tunnel Vision show uh, more. But watch out for the letdown, though. <laughs> Emotional game. You got to make sure that you bounce back from it and you'll get back to that even keel and go to work this week because, you know, it's going to be three tough games in a row that USC is going to have to get up three times in a row. And that's usually when college football teams struggle when they have back to back or they have two or three, you know, big games in a row. So we'll see what USC does there. But took care of business against UCLA, made the plays when they needed to, to give themselves a shot to continue going forward uh, with all those possibilities. One, the Pac-12 championship and the, the college football playoff as well. Carlos is reminding us that we got to talk about someone else. Jordan Addison. He came back in a big way. He told everyone earlier this week after practice that he's going to show everyone that he's back and uh, he did. He had 11 catches for over 170 yards and a touchdown. Seemed like every time that USC needed to move the ball, needed to get it to someone on third down, it was Jordan Addison. I don't know if UCLA kind of forgot he was out on the field at certain points, but it <laughs> seemed like he was open just about every time he needed to be. I was just I was shocked at how easy it was between Caleb Williams and Jordan Addison all game, and I think we can all safely say it. He definitely is back. Well, they certainly forgot about him on that touchdown. That you can't say that they forgot about him. That's great play design. Yeah, they got 
just schemes. There, there are a couple other catches, though, where it feels like like there was one that was a zone coverage. Kayla Williams is USC's going towards the west end zone. Um, they're backed up, and they're on the left hash, and he throws all the way across the right hash. And maybe it's just they don't think that Kayla Williams can make that throw. Like, oh, I'll have time to get over there. But he's just hovering over there, and it was like second and seven or something. So it was a little bit, you know, if they don't complete it, could be in trouble, backed up, and have to punt the ball. And it's like there's no one within 10, 12 yards of Jordan Edison. It's like, why is no one guarding that guy? If you're going to leave someone wide open, like Austin Jones got wide open a little bit later out of the backfield, that makes a little bit more sense. USC leaving Michael Aziki wide, wide, wide open on the touchdown. But Jordan Addison, the Belenikoff winner, like I think someone should have that responsibility every single play. That was that one was a little bit strange. We we Maryland boys move uh, low key. Sometimes you get lost. <laughs> and he was so trying to get lost on the setup for that touchdown. That was the purpose of USC. They went. Uh, they said they went tempo to get up to the the line really quick, and then put Jordan Addison in the backfield so that they could get what. What ended up happening is, is so they could get him matched up with a linebacker, got him against John John Vons, and he just ran right by him. You know, and that's just speed against a linebacker. That's a matchup you're trying to create, and that's again the creativity of Lincoln Riley with his play calling, and you know the things that I try to ask questions about that he doesn't want to talk about. Uh, you know, why he's hiding Taj Washington in an H back spot, kind of duck down where the tight end normally would be. Why you would put a tight end in the backfield and then move a running back or move a wide receiver back there. It's all about creating those matchups and seeing how defenses react to when they see two people in the backfield because they don't see a running back and a running back or running back and a wide receiver. Usually they see two people. They look at it in that direction. Okay, well, one of the linebackers gets one of the guys in the backfield. The other linebacker gets another guy. And if you go, okay, that's the way they're going to play it, all right, let's let's have Jordan Addison be one of the guys that they that linebacker tries to guard and see how that works for him. And he said, I believe he joked that they told him to hide his number, to don't let him see who, who's back there, number three. Otherwise, a bunch of alarm bells would have been going off. And right before we went on to the show, we actually watched that call in Spanish on accident. And I don't think I can ever go back. I think I'm just all <laughs> I'm sorry, Gus Justin, but it's all Spanish calls on USC football. Was it muy complicada? Yeah. Very complicated. Yeah, that, the previous play was an Austin Jones run, I believe, and they didn't substitute. And I see Austin Jones flank out left, so I think I tell Chris, oh, they're going empty. And then I see a helmet next to Caleb Williams, and I had my binoculars. I was like, who's there? I can't see the number. Who's like? I was like, who's not out wide? And like, wait, where'd Jordan Addison go? And they snap the ball. He takes a couple steps. I see the, I see the number three. I see he's got a linebacker on him. And I, I look to Chris, I'm like, Addison, touchdown. And Caleb Williams looks that way. And then it looks like he doesn't want to throw it because it, like, Addison looked covered for a little bit. Caleb, it looked like he hesitated a second and then threw it, and, and Addison was just wide open right in front of Chris and I in the end zone. Yeah, I thought it was just you know one of the better play calls that Lincoln Riley's had this year to be able to utilize a weapon like that. And even with guys like Mario Williams not playing, um, you didn't have another Trojan receiver go over three catches. Jordan Addison was able to make it work whenever they needed him to. Mario Williams did play in the game. I meant no, like not playing his best. Oh, gotcha. Um, so... Of those things that the Jack just said, one, the first thing that stands out to me is who brings binoculars to the sideline? Someone who. Jack uh, Smith, I guess. I guess. Uh, you know, I thought he had good eyes. I thought he was a young kid. See, but, I guess but not. if they're on the other side of the field. Mm, yeah, of, of course. You can't roam the sideline or anything like that. But anyway. Well, I couldn't. I, I, like I told you before, I couldn't get service anywhere other than the one spot I was standing but in. But you didn't know you would only be locked into one spot. So you had the binoculars. That's just being before. prepared. That's prepared. being prepared. Good, good for him. Um, but you, you talk about Jack. Uh, Jack talked about 
trying to find like he sees a helmet and trying to see what what's back there, and that's what the defense was trying to do at the same time, and that's why they tell him if anyone's not not didn't understand why they would tell uh, Jordan Addison to try to hide his number, is you don't know players by their name when you're watching film. You're like, oh, three is good, you know, four is electric. This guy, this like that's how you. You don't have time to learn everybody's names throughout a season, especially if it's someone's name is difficult. You don't want to be trying to remember that as you're talking in film session. That's why you never ask uh, players, what do you think about uh, Johnson Smith? He's like, is that 14? And he's like, because <laughs> they only know by numbers. They don't They don't care about names. You want to preface it. What do you think about number three, Jordan Addison? Um, but so he's ducking down so they can't really read his number though, so that they would be cued that, hey, alert, alert, three's in the backfield or something like that. And then Caleb Williams, why it looked like he hesitated, in my opinion, was that it looked like the safety might stay over the top of that. And so he was waiting to see if that cleared. And once he, you know, once the safety kind of moved towards the middle of the field, he's like, oh, money, buckets, put it out there, let Jordan go make a play. And then I thought it was interesting. This is for Jordan Addison, Caleb Williams, several of the other transfers. They learned this motion really quickly. Uh, you know, they didn't talk about rivalry much during the, during the week, but a lot of the fours down – Throughout the bench after the Corey Foreman touchdown, Caleb Williams. I mean, I thought his hands were like basically stuck like this through after the uh, after the game. I was concerned, you know, that maybe he developed some carpal tunnel issues or whatever. But no, it was just the UCLA fours down um, because he every photo that he wanted to take until Lincoln Riley came and stood beside him. Then he'd put up the regular, you know, two fingers. Uh, but the rest of the photos, he was it was fours down everywhere. So you know, those you wonder. How do transfers kind of get ingratiated into that that experience? And from all the trash talk and everything else, they were fully invested. Somebody uh, clipped that and sent me a gif of uh, Shotgun doing <laughs> force down. Thank you. Well, they, they were doing it all game too. Jordan Addison went right in front of the UCLA students after that touchdown. And, and they were all like Mario Williams did it on the Austin Jones score. And Brett Nealon, you can look at uh, Chris's field level video, grabs Mario Williams by the back. He's like, no, we're going, to, we're going back to our sideline. Stop celebrating Austin Jones's touchdown in the face of the UCLA student yeah, section. I'm pretty sure I saw a referee look like he was a gunslinger reaching for that flag when he's, he was watching Mario Williams. So it was quick draw. Somebody threw trash on the field at, yeah. the, at, at right Austin in, Jones. Yeah, it was right in front of us. Uh, and I mean, there was chippiness all game. Dorian Thompson-Robinson looked like he got a warning from a ref after uh, chirping at the U USC sideline. It was everything that you would expect from the USC-UCLA rivalry. And I thought that the atmosphere was even better than I imagined it. I put out a poll earlier in the week asking followers what percentage they thought uh, USC fans there were going to be in the stadium. I think they were a little ambitious saying over 50%, but I would say it's solidly somewhere between 35-40% Trojan fans in the stadium and both sides whenever their team would make a play were so loud, so mean, um, using words that we can't repeat on this show that are going to be in Chris's ghost notes, but they were, they were fantastic and I, I think both fan bases stepped up and the atmosphere was just electric, loud, and crazy. Yeah, and Nick uh, asked the question, could you guys give your perspective on the atmosphere in the stadium last night? It seemed absolutely electric. We've heard from Jack, his first time in the Rose Bowl, uh, get to experience that. Chris, what, what did you think uh, of the rivalry atmosphere, and you know, is there a game that you would compare it to that, that we've uh, covered recently? A game that I would compare it to that I've covered recently? Well, here's the thing. This is my first time being like on the field to shoot a game in the Rose Bowl. Usually I'm up in the press box. The closest I've come to is the 2016 Rose Bowl, where I was at down on the final uh, five minutes of the game, got a great shot of uh, the Deontay Burnett uh, touchdown, mm -hmm. 
and had food poisoning that, that game from the hot dogs up at the top, so I did not feel great, but still got the shot. That is probably the most electric environment I've ever been in, in terms of like on the field, that uh, that rivalry, or not the rivalry, but that, uh, you know, that intensity. And it was, it was pretty lit down there on the field. I, I will admit, it was pretty lit, uh, you know, with the, with the lights and the shadows and then all the, like, whenever, whenever when, like, mainly the Bruins, when the Bruins would do something good, you know, all the, the blue shimmering and then when uh, USC would do something good, all the red on the far end zone shimmering. So with the lights, it was really cool, really loud, um, a lot of fan engagement from both sides, flipping each other off, uh, a lot of interesting chants from the crowd. Uh, I like that there was so much space on the sideline when you're going from around the sideline. Uh, but it was just a fun game to cover. Uh, the most exciting part for me was, you know, covering games like this, getting to see the interactions and the celebrations after on the field. You get a lot of good good stuff. Um, I did want to ask you guys what your favorite, like, moment post-game on the field was. <laughs> I think the my favorite photo from it is the Caleb Williams and uh, Lincoln Riley standing in front of the scoreboard. I wish I was more of a professional photographer and while I was throwing elbows, could have adjusted my camera quick enough to get it everything in focus to get the backdrop as well. But you know that was that showed me what this rivalry or what being at USC means to them. You know they've taken in the rivalry, they've taken in that, that it means something to them, and seeing uh, also. Caleb Williams and I give Allison Williams, uh, the uh, the sideline reporter who was doing the post game interview, give her a lot of credit for chasing down Caleb Williams because he was just celebrating. the The game ended. He was down the sideline. He was up on the ladder. He was coming down from the ladder. He was you know screaming the entire time, and she's trying to wrangle him the entire time for this post game interview, and eventually got him. Uh, at least showed clips on Sports Center, so I assume she got him. But you know, I thought that was interesting because he, during the game, you would have never known that he was that invested in the game. But that's Caleb Williams' personality because during the game, like Lincoln Riley, they're down fourteen zero, or you know, early in the game, they're struggling on offense, and Lincoln Riley's kind of pacing with his head down, and Caleb Williams is right beside him, just bobbing his head along to whatever music is being played during the the time the TV timeout and singing along this unfazed by everything just cool as can be and then after the game you see the emotion pour out and it's almost like there's an on off switch there of like when the final buzzer is like all right he just releases and you know the guards that are on him and lets the emotion free and that's when you see him fired up because pretty much every game when they win he's very demonstrative afterwards let's go or whatever he's yelling or at, he has at that, that time. emotion like at Utah. Yeah, uh, the mm -hmm. same thing. And, you know, I know USC fans are making fun of Dorian Thompson-Robinson for walking off the field crying, but that shows you the emotion, uh, the investment that he had in this rivalry. Uh, it's a, He was a great competitor in this rivalry for the last five years. So it, it's going to be interesting to see what UCLA does at quarterback going forward. But he's been he's he definitely left his mark in this rivalry uh, over the last five years for for better and worse uh, for from his performances. But uh, you, you know it was it was he was wearing carrying that team on his sleeve uh, or carrying that team on his shoulders and wearing his emotions on his sleeve throughout the night. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? 
Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. 1972, 2022. It's a long time. <laughs> Jack, what about you? Uh, my, I would say I had a couple. If you, Allison Williams did wrangle in Caleb Williams, and at the end he just kind of screamed out, I want to go ring that bell. Uh, and then he went and rang the bell. But my favorite was... Sounds like a four-year-old. Seeing the... Uh, Seeing the Trojans run to get the victory bell, they had it at midfield, and they rang it from midfield all the way as they wheeled it to the big swarm of USC fans and students and parents and the band and the players and everyone. They were ringing it all the way there and then ringing it uh, while the band was playing Tusk. There was Mario Williams, who I like right after the game, he ran off the sideline and was doing his own dance with no one else. And like it's kind of like he was trying to sing a rap beat, a rap verse to the beat of Tusk to himself while dancing, which I'll, I'll put the video on my Twitter maybe tomorrow. But there was just a lot of fun stuff. I, I would just say, like, being in that swarm at the USC end of the bowl where the band was playing and all the fans had gathered. It's something you don't really get at the Coliseum as much because the band has to come down from there from the stands. But this just in that one corner where everyone was located and all the players kind of swarmed to at the end, it was loud. It was crazy. And uh, I, I've really never seen anything like it. It was probably the best scene I've been a part of. Um, the only thing that probably compares would be, granted, I was not at the Rose Bowl uh, for that. I was in San Antonio um, for the All-American game. Still upset about that. But uh, it was the, the Rose Bowl that I covered, which was Georgia-Oklahoma with Lincoln Riley, just because that was Georgia going to the national championship game and you know the scene after that with the confetti and everything else. Um, that's probably the closest thing to that as far as just the scene afterwards because it was there was so much emotion on that. And that's why I'm concerned about next week for USC is there was so much pent-up emotion from players that they kind of released after that game. And they were so excited and they were so so jubilant afterwards that how do you, you know, get back to even kill and then re- rebound from it. But it was it was it was fun to be down there and see those players, especially those guys that like I said, that we know from six, seven years of covering to be able to to see the joy for them to be able to go out against UCLA with a win like that, especially after how last year went. And then asking those guys, asking Brett and Elon, asking Kyle Ford, you know, I asked Kyle Ford, could you have imagined, you know, last season being going to the Pac-12 championship? And he said, I would have called you a dead liar if, if you had said that last year. And, you know, Brett and Elon, the same thing, you know, that he couldn't have imagined that, that they would be in the place that they're at. 
very quickly before we get into questions, I assume. We it was like, we're going to have to rapid fire questions. We're almost yeah. at the 8 o'clock mark already. We can go a little bit over. Right. Yeah. It's a big week. I, I got no rush. I got no rush. I but, might just sleep here, so, you know, whatever. Uh, I lost my train of thought. It was. It felt like, in that end zone, it felt like the world's greatest USC party for like five minutes. It felt like an outdoor party. It was more than five minutes. I mean, that was... The time slows down down there. <laughs> so from the end of the game, I think it was like 13 to 15 minutes somewhere in there, um, or at least from Corey Foreman being celebrated on the sideline. And before you get to that, uh, real quick, Corey Foreman was being congratulated, celebrating you know that the receiving line on the sideline of everyone wanting to high-five him, give him a hug, whatever, basically until the game ended. And there was like a minute and a half to go when he intercepted the pass. And there was like three, I don't know if it was three or four plays. I didn't see any of them because I was trying to get photos of Corey Foreman. But that entire time, everyone wanted to congratulate him. And that's not just, hey, someone won a survivory game. That's everyone has seen the work he's put in and, you know, kind of the stuff that he's gone through with people doubting him. And for him to make a play, I think everyone was super excited for it to be him to, to make that play as well. Very quickly, my three observations that I just wanted to share from the sideline. One being Mike Bone absolutely assaulting some poor man with so much energy and emotion, like Dan Fouts to Brett Musburger at the end of uh, Waterboy. It's because he didn't hold anything back. And then immediately, and then immediately seeking eyes with Lincoln Riley and them sharing a giant hug. And two, it's, you know, in that moment, it's like everyone is celebrating together. But what I th- found interesting was Raylan Goforth by himself in the middle of the field, kind of taking it all in. And I could kind of see it in his face and his body language. Like he was just so overwhelmed by the moment of what they just did and just kind of taking it in by himself, kind of his arms up, kind of just taking it all in, you know, soaking it all in by himself in that moment. I thought that was an interesting contrast to what was going on down on the field. And then maybe my favorite one, well, you were with me, is just everyone's having a good time by the upright and then Justin Dietrich comes in out of nowhere with two helmets <laughs> hoisted up and it had the same energy of a guy showing up at the party with two six packs of a party that's running low two cases two Not cases two cases of beer someone's like hey DD and he just has these two things just hoisting them through the crowd and you're like where did he get two helmets it doesn't matter he's already gone he's, and then we lost him in the middle of the thing, so that was kind of my... Yeah, uh, Chris described it well, even better in his ghost notes. If you didn't check those out, there's a really um, uh, cool moment or fun moment with Raylan Goforth as well at the end of that description. I don't want to ruin it, so make sure you're a a VIP subscriber at uscfootball.com. The Ghost Notes game day is probably worth the price of admission alone, but then you get all of our other stuff as well, all the recruiting content, all that type stuff. So make sure you're signed up. And if you, you haven't already, hit the, the like button down below. Make sure you're sharing, subscribing, all those things. But he, he described it even better in his ghost notes. He said that it was like at a, a frat party where you're low on alcohol and suddenly someone walks in with two cases of beer over their head. Because it was just it was someone so that everyone loves. Yeah, it's just so random that he had two helmets in one hand as what not two hands, not anything, not carrying them at his at his waist, anything like that. Just palmed up up here. It was a very interesting scene. Um, and it was it again, another one of those guys that we've known for five Five, 10, 15 years, however long they, they've been in school. Uh, I think, did any of those guys start at the same time DTR started in 1972? No. None of them were born <laughs> no. in, uh, at that time. And the other uh, moment for me was the embrace of Corey Foreman and, and Lincoln Riley. Because when Corey Foreman came off the field, Lincoln Riley's calling the plays. They were trying to get a first down. So there was never, a, 
you know, a real moment there. And eventually things come around, and Lincoln Riley makes his way over, and he has got the biggest grin. He, he stares us straight through my soul at one point um, as I'm taking photos. And then he finds Corey Foreman, and they share an embrace and a moment. Uh, and, you know, Lincoln Riley talked about it a little bit after the game about what he said. is basically that, you know, these are the plays that we've talked about making and, you know, that we think you the, – the context is they think he can make those type of plays on a regular basis, and he's got to just keep working on it. And for him to make one, they were super excited for it. So that, that was really fun to see uh, those type of embraces too. Like I said, it was, it was a scene down there for sure. I think there were more celebration highlights yesterday than there probably were the entirety of last season for USC. I mean, I feel like you could list. Yeah, that's a good, good call. You could list like 15 different cool highlights, whether you're talking about even Bobby Haskins' embrace, which we mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, Caleb Williams had like eight on his own, like a kind of a Heisman-worthy moment of celebrations. Uh, I just thought there were so many different things out on that field, which is crazy that it happened on the road too, because we've seen some victories at the Coliseum this year where the players want to celebrate and the coach is like, no, no, go to the locker room right now. And this time they let him stay on the field, even if it was 13 minutes, just at the Rose Bowl in that corner where the, all the USC fans had kind of braved through a 14 nothing deficit and then really just a game full of haymakers where it was blow after blow back and forth to be able to come out with a win. I think you're right, Shotgun, that maybe SC does have to worry about Notre Dame coming to town and being kind of a hangover game. But also that being said, being down 14 on the road to UCLA and coming back and winning the way they did, I think it could also instill a lot of confidence. I think it could swing both ways where they might think now, look, we just we just won that game. We can handle business at home with also something we got to mention, a lot still riding on the season because USC is still in playoff scenarios. So we'll segue into questions that way. Uh, one, one last observation. All right. Um, you guys didn't mention I thought it would be one of your favorite scenes. I thought it would be Chris's, to be honest, especially when he said three. But And partly the reason why it stopped at about 13 minutes and they were like, all right, I think it's time to start getting the players off the field, was a USC, I think, fan ran on the field and was filming himself running around until he was obliterated by a security guard. And Chris got some great footage of that. So another reason why you should be subscribed and following us all on, on social medias and stuff, at least while the social medias we are on still exist. I heard that guy got a three-pack five, power five offers after that. I wouldn't doubt it if he's got any eligibility left. That was it was booming. The Barstool UCLA account made a, a comment about maybe the differences between his tackling ability and the UCLA defense's tackling ability that uh, you can go check out, I guess, on their Twitter page. But that was that was one heck of a hit. It looked like you know a safety roaming around. Someone said it looked like Sean Taylor, and uh, that was a huge hit. But credit to the kid who ate it. He immediately got back up and then got, and then got thrown tackled again. into the. <laughs> Into the bench. <laughs> when you're, I, I'm assuming he was drunk. When you're drunk, you can take hits like that all day, babe. All right, let's go to questions now. All right, yeah. Blackie Chan plays uh, on we're YouTube. Go, asks, we're going rapid fire, Chris. You can do it. I can do it. Let's do it. All right. Do you think USC will jump LSU in the CFP ranks to number five? I think it might take one more win. I think wow. they win this week against LSU. I mean, uh, against uh, Notre Dame because LSU has Texas A&M this week. So. I don't think they'll get any cachet from that, but another this would be another this would be a top fifteen win for USC. I think they would then jump them. I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say yes as well. I think that with LSU not having a ranked win this week, USC having another ranked win, or I guess really their first ranked win. I think they move up. Uh, with someone asked, can we talk about the hit the fan took after the game by security? Uh, let's, we'll go with this one, Steve, on YouTube. Whose stock has risen the most over the course of the season? They gave out some examples: Makai, Taj, Travis, Tuli, Tuli, Pelotu. Who would you guys go with? Yeah, I think that's the. 
That was a great question there, Steve. I had this one highlighted as well. But so many choices. Is this NFL stock? It just mm. stock. It just gave stock. Yeah. Stock up. Stock neutral. Stock up. I'm going to go. Up. I'm going to start with Makai Blackman. I think he's gone from a guy that maybe gets a, a, an invite to training camp or whatever to he's likely going to be a draft pick. He has shown, and I talked to him before the season, what do you want to show NFL scouts this season? The exact question I asked. He said, I got to show that I can take the ball away. And he's done that. Stanford game, here again, the great catch against Oregon State. So I, I think he's shown what he can do, and he's been a lockdown guy for USC. He's been that number one guy throughout the season and been terrific for him. How about Kyle Ford? Just, you know, being a guy who two devastating knee injuries was at one point coming out of high school looking like the best wide receiver in the country and then just got derailed a little bit and couldn't get on the couldn't get on the, the rotation, couldn't get in the starting lineup and was buried in, in, in practice and depth charts. And then to have him come up with some of the biggest plays in that game and that touchdown, you know, speaks a lot to him and you can see he was rewarded for his uh, his playing time or his, his his plays in that game. So here's just hoping to see more of uh, Kyle Ford, a I don't want to say forgotten five star, but a guy who you know has all the talent in the world and has hasn't really showcased it all, at all yet. Yeah, there's two tough picks for me, and they're actually very different. Where it's Taj Washington, who we I'm not sure how much USC fans were expecting from Taj Washington coming into the year. He didn't have the greatest year last year; had some drop issues. He was clearly not used in the right way, but he started out as the number three wide receiver, and I think he's a lot like Kyle Ford, where he came out of nowhere, but he's had more production this year. Or you go Tui Tui Pelotu, who we always thought was one of the better defenders in the Pac-12, but did you think he might have a shot at the the uh, league lead, the nation lead in sacks. Some people are talking about him like he's a first-round draft pick. I think we all expected a lot from Tui Tui Plotu, but maybe not this much. Nowhere near this. He's potentially a first-round pick. He, I don't even think we considered him one of the top defenders and that, you know, a guy that was in the mix for Defensive Player of the Year award or anything like that. Um, yeah, I predicted that, so yeah. You did? I, I did. Yeah, no, that's one of my I did, predictions. I did not have him on that list, especially not going into last year. You know, I've covered him for since his sophomore year of high school, I want to say. Um, and, you know, I've seen the progression, but he has taken such a big step from last season to this season and just been, you know, a, a dominant uh, factor for USC. Also, what was he out of high school? A three star? Is that what you wanted to hear? Well, so was Taj Washington. There are a lot of a lot of three stars making some noise. Taj on Washington the USC was another roster. guy when USC when he transferred in. I was super excited about what he could do for USC, and he was a freshman American. Didn't happen last year, and you see what, as Jack said, when they use him the right way, don't just throw 50-50 balls to a five foot ten guy. All right, uh, Chris, we'll start you off on this one. There's two questions I'm going to combine, one from Bob uh, asking what recruits were at the game last night, and then also another one, which I'm, I'm losing right now, is how does the win impact recruiting going forward? Here's the thing. UCLA, super weird high school recruiting. Uh, Brandon Huffman put a piece out that listed pretty much everyone that was going to be there. The big ones that I saw were DeAndre Carter, the modern-day Top 100 offensive lineman in the 2024 class. That's a guy USC has been on very hard. I would say USC is his leader. But to pick up that win on a UCLA visit, that's great. And then the other big one is the edge rusher, Collins. Not going to be able to say his last name. I can't even think of how it's spelled in my head. But I know you're talking about. Uh, yeah. uh, who was committed to Michigan? Michigan. And is he still committed there? Or I believe he okay. is. So but Michigan commit uh, was at a school that did not have football. 
leading into this year and then went to Santa Margarita and unfortunately had an injury. So he uh, basically didn't get to play the, again this year either. Um, Achupung or something like that, I believe it is. That's the closest we're going to get. Yeah, so the same thing with Chris. You know, the recruits are actually kept there. The recruit room um, where they're hosting them at is actually near the media uh, room and underneath the bowels of Rose Bowl, the Rose Bowl. But I saw a ton of guys that were there, a ton of recruits, and didn't recognize many of them. Now, part of that is because I'm not covering as much recruiting stuff, but also, like, it's not the top-end high school guys in the local area, which is what you would have expected for that game. But that's – Chip Kelly doesn't recruit <laughs> the top-end high school guys. He recruits his own guys, and a lot of transfers now is the, his formula has been recently. And Marcellus Williams are there, but as as far as I know, also there wasn't a bunch of St. John Bosco guys there. Like, Payne Woodyard wasn't there, other, other like – from the big modern day or St. John Bosco outside of Carter. So those were, I don't know why I say Carter, so weird. But I don't know. that Those were kind of the, the headliners that I, that I just rattled off. And then, and then how, do, how do you think this win impacts recruiting for SC going forward? I mean, we talk about, um, we, me and you Gerard have talked about 12 this. 12 seconds uh, we, to answer this. Uh, the wins, double-digit wins are very sexy when you're out on the recruiting trail. Like, hey, we won 10 games. You know, eight wins, you double it. Okay, nine wins. That's looking pretty good. Ten wins after four wins, that's super sexy. So you can sell that in home visits. That's a great stat to point to. And rivalry game and all that stuff. Local kids are going to love it too. And they're going to get into that much, much more this week on the two-star composite uh, podcast. So make sure you're listening to that too. Yeah, and I think a win against Notre Dame clinches a New Year's Six Bowl, which is also, I think, pretty sexy for recruits. I think even if UCLA or USC would end up losing the Pac-12 title, Cotton Bowl might call. I don't like it when Jack says sexy, so we're going to index that. <laughs> wow. All right, uh, let's get into a couple more. SC Neal asked, do you think USC makes the college football playoff if they win the last two games? No ifs, ands, or buts. I would say yes. I don't think that they are going to be left out as a one-loss conference champion with three straight top 10 or top 15 wins, and their one loss coming on the road to what is right now a top 15 team by one point on the last, pretty much the last play of the game. You're not going to... But you're not going to leave them out in uh, for a one-loss Michigan or Ohio State, who really has would at that point have less uh, one or less top 25 wins. Tennessee losing this week makes it pretty much impossible for them to make the playoffs. LSU, I think the only situation in which they don't is LSU winning the SEC. SC might get the short end of the stick there, but I'm going to say yes. The answer is yes. Things will will shake out. I, I just think it'll play out. I said this I think two or three weeks ago. Uh, if they win out, I think it'll shake out in USC's favor. What they said. All right, Shotgun, in case that happens, USC would probably end up being the four. Georgia might end up being the one. So SC Neal also asked uh, for Shotgun as our resident Georgia expert, how would SC match up against the Bulldogs? Not Ten well. Seconds. Not well. That's I it, said right. I upset a lot of fans last weekend when I said that USC's the Pac-12's only hope and they're not you know ready for the playoff spotlight, and I don't think they are. You know, I just there there are holes on this team, and you know, going up against a team like of a national championship caliber like Georgia. I don't think would be, you know, USC would do well in that matchup. All right. Yeah, can yeah. you just imagine, just very quickly, like an SEC defensive line going up against USC's offensive line? line? Yes. I, I, the, other, the question is on the other side. USC, yeah. uh, S, uh, SEC offensive line going up against the front of USC and then getting to the second level with the linebackers. And then if you're USC and having to guard the tight ends of Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington, that's not a good matchup for USC. Now, should USC not try to go to the college football playoff? Should they, you know, hope that they don't get in and just play in the Rose Bowl? No, go play, get the experience. That's how you get better. You see, okay, that's what we need to be like. 
And then you have that experience going into the next year. So then you don't have any of those jitters, those nerves, anything if you make it back. And, and Chris, I know you're going to hate this, but what's sexiest to recruits is if you can say we're one of the few schools ever that has made the college football playoff and Lincoln Riley came in and made it year one. Chris, you got 15 seconds to answer this one. David asked, at the end of the first half, why did USC get two chances to kick the same field goal? What? Because Chip <laughs> Kelly called timeout oh. on the first one. So that's why the first kick was short, but they had already called, they had called a timeout right before it happened. They tried so, to ice him. Yeah, and he got an extra turn. And you know, it w- interesting would have been – if they didn't try to ice him, what happens on that return? Because oh, he boy. caught the ball but beneath the, the goalpost. They had put someone back underneath the goalpost to, to catch it if it ended up being short. Does USC make the tackle on that? Or does that become seven points the other way for you know a kick-six type, type play uh, for UCLA? All right, a player we haven't talked about yet that was a big piece of discussion going into the game. Uh, Fatima asks on YouTube, Gentry warmed up and dressed, but did he play? All right, so we got multiple questions, so let me get all those in here. Gentry warmed up and dressed, but did he play? Glenn want to know what's his status. SC Neal said, what happened to Eric Gentry? Lincoln duped us again. Charger Charger said, can we expect Gentry close to 100% for the Notre Dame game? So Gentry came out for the second series of defense and played at least a handful of snaps or a couple snaps. I'm not sure of the exact total. Um, but then he, we didn't see him again. It was like, where did he go? And we see him on the sideline or whatever, and there's no noticeable thing necessarily but I asked Alex Grinch about it after the game, and he said you could tell that he was limping around, he was in pursuit, and you could tell that he wasn't 100%, and they said we're just going to shut him down. Is he going to be close to 100% for Notre Dame game? No. Is he going to be available for the Notre Dame game? Ooh, that's I, I'm doubting that one as well. I think they saw, they tried to give him a chance, and now the good thing is they didn't try to push him. He played seven snaps. I'm looking it up now. Um, and shut him down. So maybe another week of healing, he can come back. But he didn't look great in warm-ups. He looked a little ginger as he was trying to go through some of the drills and stuff. So I think he, you know, he set the goal, I think, to come back for this rivalry game and tried to make it go, and it didn't happen. I don't know if he'll be back. I, I think the Pac-12 championship is probably the best, and that's great. This is all kind of speculation jumping from outside of seeing how he kind of moved around yesterday. Yeah, you can just tell in warm-ups his – just like mentally, you know, he's an emotional leader. He's a mm-hmm. fired up guy. He was very subdued. You know, guys were excited in the linebacker group during drills. He seemed to be focusing on something else. He seemed to be maybe like worrying about what that ankle was going to do. What what the, it, like just getting that confidence in his in his uh his body again. So he just seemed like he his mind was drifting to somewhere, not like intently on the game because. We know he's an emotional guy. He's a fiery guy. You just didn't really see that in warm-up. So mm-hmm. just seemed a little muted. So just seemed like he was uh, thinking about something else. He was he was plenty uh, excited after the game, though. That is very true. Excited after the game, yes. <laughs> the weir- Everyone was. The weirdest thing was even though they shut him down, when UCLA was kicking a field goal and they substituted, and then USC decided to run someone out on the field to make them wait, Gentry was the person that sprinted out on the field. They wanted and that length. They wanted the length. But that, I just thought that was pretty interesting because that would have been after what Alex Trinch was talking about shutting him down. He still had his pads and helmet. Maybe they wanted UCLA to think he could come back into the game at some point. But if he was really injured, I'm just I was kind of confused as to why he was the one sprinting out onto the field for that play. I, I don't know the timing of all this, but my guess is that they, if it was a field goal, they might have been like, "All right, we can stand him up there at the line. He's not going to chase anybody." Because the question is, I think he has my guess from seeing the wrappings, from seeing the play. He had Brendan Peely fall on him in the Utah game, still played a little, a couple more plays before finally coming out. He has a high ankle sprain. So you can jump on that, and you don't really have any issues, 
But then when you try to cut, that's when the issues come. So they might say, hey, we can run him out there and have him jump at a kick uh, and you know, you just use his length and the fact that he's six six and has that wingspan, but it's you know not going to really uh, affect him uh, or re-injure anything there. Whereas if he's trying to run after someone, cut and you know take on blockers, all those type things, then that's much they feel like he might have been in a little bit more danger for re-injury then. All right, a couple other questions. Oscar on YouTube says, "What are the keys to beat Notre Dame on defense and offense?" We will cover that on the Tunnel Vision show later this week uh, for the preview show. Carlos asks, "Is Caleb old enough to gamble?" For everyone that makes fun of my age, Caleb and I are the same age, surprisingly enough. Uh, so he's not old enough to gamble, nor am I. We'll be in Vegas, and we won't be able to hit up the casinos. Nor do I think they'll be sending any. Gambling was eighteen. No, I don't think so. Am I wrong? Thought it had to be 21 to be maybe. All right. Other All right, question. Ben's wig. We can talk about this one. Will this UCLA game mirror the title game against Oregon? Assuming Oregon makes it. Let's not even jump into that yet. Let's wait and see what the rest of the Pac-12 plays out because there could be all chaos and USC could play Oregon, Washington, or Utah still. So let's wait. Focus on the Notre Dame game if you're going to be looking ahead. All right, which questions do you want to get into then? Rapid fire. The, the last couple, uh, there's been a couple questions about any word on Addison. I don't know if you guys noticed. He went. It seemed like he went to the tent after that last catch where he kind of tried to he had a screen. He tried to run through a couple defenders, um, but he came out after the game. He didn't look like he was in any pain or anything. I don't think it's anything serious there. Um, I would expect him to be perfectly fine. So for those that are concerned about his um, his health going forward, I think he'll be all right. Trojan Trojan want to know, did Caleb Williams talk to DTR after the game? Couldn't tell you. Didn't see it. I mean, he might have texted him or uh, IG messaged him or something, but he was too busy celebrating to talk to anyone uh, on the opposing team. He didn't even go to the other side, I don't think. They'll see each other at massage therapy this week, I'm sure. <laughs> that's that's true. They do have the same massage therapist. Um, Lamont said, I believe this game keeps Foreman and hopefully Barlow out of the portal. Can you think of any others? Thank you keeps out of the portal yeah i think that when you're winning like this you see less and less guys that are defecting for a portal um you know we know that or we anticipate that gary bryant will be doing that because he has decided to sit out so he can preserve his red shirt other than that you know you don't feel like they're you don't see on the sideline people that look like they're disgruntled or anything like that now maybe there are some guys that are behind the scenes but when you're winning it takes care of a lot of things Winning cures a lot. Jordan Addison was well enough to someone's pointing out in the in the chat to lead the band. So he climbed up the ladder. He was leading the band. If he was really injured, you kind of wonder whether they would send him over to do that. Yeah, and he was excited to do it. He said it was a surreal moment to be up there. He said he had seen his teammates go up there this season, hadn't had that opportunity, and so then he said, "Check that box off, um, include that." You know that that box apparently was right beside the Belenikoff Award. You know, Belenikoff Award, lead the USC band. What a, what a what a grand guy doing all those things. Um, we have three to four games left, Lamont says. I believe we are peaking at the right time, getting Foreman, McCutcheon, Shaq. I don't, I don't know who Shaq is off the top of my head. Ford, Barlow, more confidence will pay off in these last few games. Do you agree? That more confidence pays off in the last few games? Yeah, yeah but getting those, those reserves. I think that's just a testament of this team, and I think that's what the players talked about afterwards. I asked that question to Kyle Ford. Um, you know, Guys that have been forgotten about or written off. And he said it's a, it's a testament to the, the trust that they have in each other. So they see each other make these plays in practice. And so they trust when someone goes in, they're going to make a play. And, you know, I asked Shane Lee about building the championship culture. That's something he said when he got here, talked about it at Pac-12 Media. He wanted to establish that for USC, wanted to build that. 
now they're going to the Pac-12 championship. And he said it's the love they have, the camaraderie, the brotherhood that they have in the locker room. He said without that, he didn't think they would be where they are right now. If you if you have faith that your number one guy or your number three guy can make a play just as good, just make the play like your number one guy, I I, I messed up that analogy, but you know what I'm saying. If you if you believe your number three guy can make the play like your number one guy, then that's a lot of confidence and that's a lot of faith in what this team is about. So I would say if your team is like that, you got a pretty good chance to win any game you're in. It's still kind of baffling to me that the way they put this roster together and how bought in everyone is. It's its unbelievable, really. Um, and that, All that credit goes to the coaching staff and the leaders on the team, I think. It feels like pretty much everyone that they've added or anyone that they already had that maybe wasn't even seeing time in the past regime, everyone has stepped up and made at least one play this season. And if they're adding Shaq, I mean, that's uh, that's adds to the red zone offense a whole ton. Shaq, <laughs> baby. That's a red zone weapon. Uh, Nick Ellis wanted to know, is there any possibility of getting in-season transfers to help for a potential playoff run? No, that's not allowed. You are. Once you start your season with one team, you're on that team until – or you can't join another team until the end of the season. Now, you can go – you can take – you can practice with players. I mean, that could potentially be a thing. If you're a mid, mid-year enrollee, that happens. In basketball, you can – there's some differences, but football, no. Um, Alan wanted to know, for me, Caleb was noticeably frustrated with the slowness of play call relays during the first few series. And did you guys notice that at all? I didn't, I didn't really notice that. Any idea what happened there also occurred against Colorado? I know Caleb is constantly wanting plays to come in quicker. Every quarterback wants the play to come in quicker, so they have time to sit and read the defense and everything like that. But that's the product of your head coach being your play caller. It takes there's an extra two or three seconds of okay I've got to decide all the decisions the head coach makes first and then go make the play call decision and when those play calls involve switching personnel that's when you see you know the the players run in the ref standing over that and we had another question if I can find it really quickly um, Al said what why is the ref allowed to stand over the center for the defense to substitute while the play clock is running this happened during the game and led to USC burning a timeout. And that's that's the rule since because of Chip Kelly actually because at Oregon they would run so much tempo and defenses could never adjust to the offense so they made the rule that if an offense substitutes the defense has to have an opportunity to be able to um, to counter that substitution and so that's the same thing with the kick and someone asked about that as well why the referee you know not you know, disallow the play because UCLA substituted and they didn't allow USC the opportunity to substitute in, in, uh, in to counter that. So therefore, they shouldn't have allowed the play to happen. They should have been holding the ball over. Now, the issue is the defense is supposed to basically sprint onto the field and sprint off the field, and that doesn't always happen. So sometimes the play clock's running out and people get very upset about it, and that's where some of those timeouts, but that's the rules. That's the way it works. Don't send in a sub with 15 seconds left and think that you got plenty of time. you got to do it when there's 25 to 30 seconds. That sparked a talking point that I wanted to bring up. As For as many minutes as we've wasted talking about Pac-12 refs on this show this season, the Pac-12 refs have really, I thought, done a great job the past two weeks, and I thought they made the rivalry game they didn't take away from the rivalry game in the Rose Bowl last night. We didn't see any ticky-tack penalties. There were some ones that you could say maybe they missed. Brandon Peely lost a helmet on a play where there could have been a face mask or hands to the face. Uh, Bryson Shaw could have been called for pass interference. But 
they kept the flags in their pocket. I thought they did the same thing against Colorado. No big time mess ups. And so I think as much as we talk about the refs when they mess up, they did. I think they do deserve some credit for, I think, calling a clean game and keeping it fun, which I think is what the players want, what the fans want, probably what TV wants as well. Uh, it makes it just way easier to watch. Yeah, they, they were hands off, I would yep. say. You know, they didn't call ticky tack stuff. You know, if it was egregious, it was called. And there weren't any that you were like, oh, my God, how did they not call that? I didn't feel like I – don't, I don't remember a single play where you were like, that should have been a penalty. There's no way it shouldn't have been a penalty. So that's a good job. The the interesting thing is the the timeout that Lincoln Riley yep. apparently called that he said he didn't call, but then there's video of him, like, making the motion for it, but he's not but saying he anything. But he didn't complete it. He was just like – But he wasn't saying anything. And the then he walked away. So I don't know. Like, that one was – he was very upset about that. I will say that. And it was interesting – that that play happened. There was a, it ended up being a TV timeout a couple plays later, and the referees all conferred in the middle of the field, talked about it, and then the White Hat went over and talked to Lincoln Riley again and tried to explain it to him, and Riley was still not having it. He was not happy with the explanation that he got, but that was really weird. Um, but those things happened. But I, otherwise, I thought they were really I'm good. team. He didn't make the call. He got really close, <laughs> saw that Caleb got it off, and just walked away. Didn't make the call. A couple people want to know, LP Cap, uh, some other people, Trojan Trojan, on the kickoffs, why are they short kicking? Kicking in the end zone. No explanation. He gave an explanation. I didn't understand the explanation. I would agree with that. But <laughs> he said that they were trying to sky kick and didn't kick the ball well. So if you're trying to sky kick, you're trying to hit it a little bit further Hit it up in the sky so that they've got not to, more time to get under it, to more time to get down the field to cover. But basically, so if the returner doesn't get it, you want the guy in the line in front of him to catch it. But he catches it around the 15 to 20 yard line, and then you're having a usually a, a tight, end. tight end return the ball rather than Kaz Allen. And that they kicked the the second one. They kicked it. I don't remember who returned it, but he ran up the sideline and picked up like 15 yards on the return, and they got the ball at the 45 yard line. And then they saw Kaz Allen running away from them on a 55 yard touchdown on the very next play. So that was the, the short kicks. It didn't make much sense. Everyone on the sideline in the media was baffled by it. Everyone watching was baffled by it. I'm, I'm guessing Joel Klatt and Gus Johnson were baffled by it. But Lincoln Riley didn't have a great explanation for it, especially when they were pretty consistently kicking it into the end zone for you know, for touchbacks to begin with. Just trust your kicker to kick it deep. You're honestly better off just kicking it out of bounds near the goal line. They get the ball at the 35. It's better than them getting the ball at the 45-yard line. I was surprised well, there were no... expecting them to get it at I the I know 45. that. <laughs> I'm just surprised there was no onside kicks by either side yesterday. I, so to, to note that, USC was very cognizant because UCLA comes out, the kicker sets the ball up while everyone is standing behind... Um, whereas, you know, USC, they get in a huddle and spread out, and then the kicker goes sets it up, I believe, and a lot of teams, that's how they do it. So they were very cognizant that while the kicker was setting that up, everyone was in tight, and then when UCLA's spread out on their kickoff coverage to go to the line and get prepared, then the rest of USC's return team would spread out with them. They were making sure they're all bunched up close to the middle of the field in case they try to sneak attack um, onside a kick. So I think both teams... Because UCLA had had one happen to them uh, earlier this season, same thing with USC, that they were both very cognizant that this is the type of game where an onside kick could swing things, like in that US UCLA-Oregon game. So I think they were both very intent on it, so I think that's why you didn't see it. But it felt like, you know, especially in the second half, is like when does UCLA try to steal one, steal a possession because of how their defense was playing, and it didn't happen. 
Ethan, it up. Uh, Ethan want to know what message does having – he said 11 players with over 100 yards receiving send to recruits. I don't know if that's – I guess that's on that the is, season. That is accurate, yeah. Uh, I think it's from all the way up from whoever's at number one to, to Kyron Ware Hudson, who's got just over 100, but they've got 11 okay. guys with 100 yards on the season. So, I read that as 100 yards in a single game, a 100-yard receiving game, which they have like five or six or seven of those. So there's several of those guys as well. Um, what, what message does that send to recruits? How much do you think USC's success is going to impact recruiting? Uh, just we'll just answer the first one. How you know? So we touched on success. What message does that send to recruits? Eleven guys with over 100 yards receiving. I mean, USC is never going to have an issue recruiting wide receivers with Lincoln Riley. You should never worry about that, given the history of the program and this offense. This is an offense you just put on the tape. Like, who's making the plays? Wide receivers. Do you want to make plays, Shotgun? When you're I, out there, I, I, yeah. So if you're if you're an 18 year old kid, you're like, I can play early. I can get in early. You know, CJ Williams is catching passes. As a freshman in this offense, Relique Brown, I know he's not a wide receiver, but he's catching passes in this offense. So this is a high-powered offense, scores a lot of points, usually has a really good quarterback under center. Who who wouldn't want to play with uh, in an offense like this? Yes, especially if you're a transfer as well and you got one year of eligibility, if I'm one of the top wide receivers, I would be looking at USC this offseason because the chance to play with one of the best quarterbacks in the country, you know what he can do to get you the ball, and you see that with some of the throws that he makes. I mean, like, that's the guy I would like to play with. And, and they rotate. And that's probably why Jordan Addison was out there. This is, brings up an interesting question. Visual Diction wanted to go first. Visual Diction said, Chris, nice to meet you in Shotgun on the sideline before the game. The sideline pass, I was in all black with a black beanie. Name is Brandon. Thanks for the awesome coverage. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Brandon. It was great meeting you down there. Uh, but he had a question. He said, Ford had a huge third down conversion when USC was down 14-0. And he had the touchdown catch. Rice with a huge drop on third down in the red zone. This is no longer a debate, right? So here's the thing. I don't know what the, the shakedown is for this game, but the last two games, Kyle Ford has actually played more snaps than Brendan Rice. He's basically become your sixth man in basketball. He's your Jamal Crawford coming off the bench, and he's the guy you're going to give the offense to. So when USC brings in their second, the second string uh, wide receivers or second group, and they bring Kyle Ford in there, do you want Kyle Ford out there with Jordan Addison and Mario Williams? And, you know, Kyle Ford's probably not going to get those opportunities. Or when you bring in the, the second group, do you want Kyle Ford to kind of be the go-to guy of that group with Terrell Bynum and, you know, Michael Jackson and those guys that he becomes – he's the number one option then. So I think that's what's kind of happening here with that X receiver position. And not to say that they're not going to still use Brendan Rice. Brendan Rice had a couple nice catches in this game. You just remember the drop because that's become an issue for him, especially because it was on third down. But, you know, he had three hands catches. And, and what's crazy about him right now is that he's making all the difficult catches – and dropping the ones that are right in his hands because he starts thinking about making the move afterwards rather than concentrating on it. So he's got to get that cleaned up, but he can still be a big asset for USC going forward. But I think that's what you're seeing. He's the third option when they have three wide receivers out there uh, to begin with, to begin a game. You get that second unit, Kyle Ford's probably the number one option at the X receiver. And Lincoln Riley did say earlier this week that Brendan Rice is doing what he needs to do in practice. He's a guy who shows out in practice and – this is a coaching staff that puts a lot into practice. If you're playing well in the week going up to Saturday, you're going to play on Saturday, and that's why we see Rice out there with the number one unit. Shotgun's right. You do for you do know that you uh, magnify the drops more than the successes of those uh, early big catches that he had, and there's something he needs to clean up. So. All right, I got three left. Lamont want to know, question I saw, Damani Jackson in on special teams. Does that mean he burned his redshirt year? 
he has now played in four games. He played a handful of snaps uh, in on defense as well in this game. Um, but that's his fourth game. If he plays any more, then he will not be able to redshirt the season. The question then becomes now for USC, and this will probably be a question that will be asked to Lincoln Riley this week, is do you want to use him in these last three to four games or is saving an extra year that important for him? You know, How good is he that whether you think that you know, we need him for an extra year later in his career, he's going to develop that much, or is he going to be gone by the end of a fourth year regardless? And Lincoln was asked about this earlier in the season, and he said when it comes to that kind of discussion about redshirting, it's like more, more often than not, they're going to play them. They'd like them to get that experience because you never know what's going to happen down the line, whether it's an injury or something. So more, more often than not, they're leaning on towards if he's healthy, he can contribute they'll play him. So sounds like we'll be leaning towards him playing, but obviously we'll have to see uh, moving forward. Uh, Trek Ranger want to know, do we worry that the USC offense has started slow the last two games? No. Eh. A little bit of concern. I will say that. You want to get out to a good start. I mean, they convert that. Relique Brown cuts up. They're probably scoring in that drive. You know, they get the first down. I mean, you know, weird going on with the snap. Or the uh, the the long snap for the field goal, you get points there. I think um, I think it might have been actually blocked. Yeah, I haven't seen that one on field. I, it looked like he just kind of sh- just shanked it. I was looking at it through my my lens, and it looked like there was a hand on it, but I don't know. But if ands and buts, but it, and much more concerned about the Colorado first quarter than yeah. this week. You know, they just didn't finish in the red zone, and they show that they can do that the rest of the time. And then the final question I have is from Ben's wig, not knowing the INT is about to occur. Seeing how porous the defense played, would you have gone for it on fourth and twenty-two in the fourth quarter? No, but I would have gone for it on third and nine had Caleb Caleb not taken a sack, or fourth and nine had Caleb not taken a sack on third down. I would have legitimately thought about that one. Yeah, I don't think I would have gone for it on fourth and twenty-two. I don't think I would have gone for it on fourth and twenty-two. And you also wonder how different that drive is that if that situation comes up again. But it's twenty yards down the field if uh, Relief Brown catches the um, the catches the kickoff instead of it starting the drive at the five because he called for fair catch and, you know, dropped the ball. It would have started at the 25. So could have been a complete drive, different drive. Than it that, but, our butts. Shotgun. Uh, yeah. it our butts. I will That's say, I say Caleb Williams played pretty much perfect. Of course, I think the interception is just one of those weird ones where quarterbacks are bound to have one where they just don't see a guy. Um, but that at the end of the game on that third down when he could have, or well, I think it was second down, could have tucked it tucked it and run and decided to flip it out to Josh Follow falls incomplete. Not only did that stop the clock, but it kept some some yards off the field for USC. I know that was the, the one mistake after the interception he made, which would have been magnified had USC not won the game, but obviously the defense bailed him out. Yeah, a lot of people wanted to talk about that play and were very upset about it. This, I, tr- I still haven't made through all my tweet notifications uh, from last night, but like as I'm going through during the game, why do you do this? And Caleb has six, eight times this year had an open path to run, and decided to flip it out to someone else. One, you're getting your receivers in, you know, you're not taking a hit, you're getting them involved in the game, whether it be, you know, not necessarily in the fourth fourth quarter uh, in crunch time, but, you know, if early in the game you're getting them involved, you know, you're spreading the ball around, and all those things kind of factor into it. That And he's a quarterback. He wants to throw the ball much more than run. You know, I, I think if he was a run-first quarterback, you'd have seen him taking off for sure. But also, if he was a run-first quarterback, when USC has gone empty set, you would see some design runs. They haven't done that all this season. When he keeps it, it's on a read option where it is based on the defense. There's been very few plays. There's maybe been 
three, maybe even, I don't even know if that many, where it's designed, Caleb is running the ball no matter what on this play. Um, there's been very few of those just complete design QB runs. So they, I, they know how valuable he is as a thrower um, that they don't want to get him out there taking a bunch of hits if not necessary. They did run one for his rushing touchdown. They had Austin Jones and Brett Nealon leak out as lead blockers for him at the goal line, which I thought was uh, they they showed that I was watching the highlights last night. Clat uh, was explaining it where Caleb dropped back and then Jones didn't release like he was going to run a route. Like he he ran to the goal line to lay a block and so did Brett Nealon. I thought that was a pretty good play design. I haven't I haven't got a chance to rewatch that one. I haven't got to that part of the game yet, but uh, yeah, they're. There, like I said, there's only been a handful, though. You know, usually if he's running, it's it's on his own recognizance, um, off of uh, you know, not off a of play design. So they they're trying to protect him as much as possible. He does a great job as well, running out of bounds when necessary. Yes, you would definitely have loved to see him take off on that one because you saw the open lane and that it didn't work. But if he completes the pass to Josh Follow and he picks up ten yards or twelve yards, is there everyone complaining that he didn't run? No, it's just that the play didn't work out that time. All right, let's wrap this. Yeah, Chris is tired now. We're hour 37 in. Thank you guys all for you know, sticking along with us. You know, I got to get my time in while I'm here. Yeah, comments are still rolling in. This is a, <laughs> I'm excited to see how many of y'all tuned into this one. But uh, thank you guys so much for, for following along, leaving these great comments on YouTube. Apologies for not getting the live calls up, but you guys contributed uh, more than we could even uh, process throughout this whole uh throughout the whole episode in the comment section. Shotgun, if you want some more time, you want to explain to them what they should all do? Make sure that you are following us on all the social medias that still exist for now. Make sure you are liking, subscribing, sharing, do all those things, whether you're watching this on Facebook, on YouTube, all those things as well. Subscribe, leave us reviews, all those things all help our al algorithm so we can get more people involved in the chat session so you guys can go back and forth so other people can answer your questions and all those type of things. And most importantly, make sure you're signed up for uscfootball.com. I think you can get First month is a buck or something? I don't and know. And there is a Black Friday deal coming up oh. this week, so be which on the lookout comes, for that. Which comes after Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving, early Thanksgiving to all of you guys. I don't know what the schedule is for Tunnel Vision quite yet. I don't think we're going to have it on Thursday night like we normally do on Thanksgiving. But uh, we Never hope you know. Ryan might be frying up turkeys while while hosting a show. Who knows? Uh, but, yeah, thanks so much for, for joining us, guys. We really appreciate it. It was an electric game last night. It was so much fun, and – we're glad that we could, you know, bring you coverage from after that game, you know, seeing such a fun one. And, you know, hope you guys appreciate the coverage and enjoyed the game last night because how much fun was that? Rivalry game, intense, back and forth. And for USC fans, a USC victory. Yeah, and now they play Notre Dame. So the rivalry's aren't over yet. USC's got now another game on the schedule as well, going to Las Vegas. Enjoy Thanksgiving. Enjoy the Notre Dame game if we don't talk to you before then, as well as uh, USC heading down to Las Vegas. Lots of things to be happy about if you're a Trojan fan right now. But that's all we've got for you guys. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday night, and we'll see you later this week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? 
and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 